2: You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins.
1: Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. I'm back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I've got my good friend and and a guy who was immense help to me making my Brothers Against Brothers movie recently, Casey McBride. Welcome, Casey. Hey, thanks for having me. I finally made it to Gangland you finally Wire. Finally made it, you know, Casey, Casey, and I go back to my earliest days uh, with uh, doing this mob stuff, all the way back to uh, went out to went out to Las Vegas to the Clark County Library and did a mob program about uh, you know about using my uh, uh, movie or my book, uh, one of the two, or maybe a little bit of both about the skimming from Las Vegas. So Casey lives in Portland, and he came down, and then uh, was that when we met? Uh, um, what's our friend's name from uh, Perump? Bill, Bill Friedman. Friedman. I think he came yeah. down that day too. He did. So it's yeah. nice to you know you you work with these people and you see people over the internet and you never meet them in person. And, and Casey was kind enough to come down and and uh, we met up and met Bill and kind of had a formed a relationship and we've continued to to maintain that relationship in this uh, this business, if you will, or a hobby. I don't know which. Uh, I, I haven't made any real money out of it yet, but. Uh, 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 well, I run it like a business uh, of uh, documenting mob history and and entertaining and enlightening uh, the general public about out there about the mafia in the United States. And it's a you know it's a fantastic subject, don't you think, Casey?
2: Oh yeah, I got you know I got hooked on it. I would have if you would have told me you know ten. Eleven years ago, I'd be doing this. I would have thought you were crazy. But uh, you know, once you kind of get the bug, you, you see it a lot with the, the folks on on the groups and things like that. Uh, you know, it, it, once you you dive down that rabbit
0: hole, yeah, you know, know. it's uh, it's it hard is, to come back is.
1: up. Speaking of the groups, you're real active on uh, uh, on the different Facebook groups. So tell the folks a little bit about what face groups are out there and uh, that you're real active in.
2: Um, well, the the most. The, active that I'm on Facebook right now is uh, with Uncle Frank's Place. And that's a a Facebook page I started that's just dedicated to the history of Frank Costello. And, uh, you know, started that as just a hobby, kind of like we're talking about, kind of took off, you know, got a lot of, quite a few people on there nowadays. And um, I also contribute once in a while to the nationalcrimesyndicate.com, which you do as well. And uh, every once in a while, I'll write a bit for them and, and put stuff up. And uh, those are kind of my two main ones. I also have well, one other group that is not quite as active, but on Joe Petrosino called Petrosino Square. So uh, I try to use that one to post stories that I come across on Mob Cops yeah. and you know the, the other side of the, the story, which, as you know, I'm pretty fascinated in that too. I think that's just as interesting as the, as the bad guy side. Right. And, and so and that's...
1: for folks that don't know who Joe Petrosino was... I tell him just a little bit about Joe Petrosino. I did a show. You can go back and, and listen to my show about Joe. But tell him a little bit about Joe Petrosino. Uh,
2: well, he was kind of, in a way, probably what I would consider one of the first real mob cops. Um, he was uh, the first Italian that was ever in the NYPD. He was too short to to get into the <laughs> NYPD at the time because I think I think he was only five foot two. But uh, they they uh, basically gave him a waiver and they let him in and which was a good decision, as it turns out, because he was where most of the other the cops of that day were Irish. You know, uh, they had a real hard time, you know, catching black handers and stuff like that. They just didn't know their customs and their ways. They're easy to spot, you know, an Irish cop. And uh, since he could speak Italian and kind of knew that world, uh, he became pretty successful in busting a whole lot of bad guys. It it, it (laughs) cost him
1: his life in the end, though, didn't it?
2: It did, yeah. He was uh, sadly he was gunned down in what, was Palermo, Italy. He was on an assignment over there, and I think that still to this day is the only uh, officer of the NYPD that was ever uh, killed in an assignment overseas. Oh, yeah, interesting. I mean, I don't even know how many guys go <laughs> yeah. overseas well, these they, days they, to do they, assignments. They do, but,
1: there is a few today because they got this big joint task force on terrorism. And they, yeah, they right, act just like federal agents, and they can be shipped overseas and do things like that. Even in Kansas City, after 9-11, all of our intelligence guys, all of a sudden, except for a couple, were shifted to the Joint Task Force on Terrorism for a while. I think it's probably backed off a little bit now, but, uh, you know, yeah. I asked them about that, and they said, you know, you wouldn't believe the amount of tips that come in that, you know, we have to go check out. So, uh, you know, I don't know.
2: I bet, yeah, yeah. I Well, it used to be an apartment manager uh, in another day, but... Uh, this was right after 911 and uh we were constantly we had FBI guys that were actually had an apartment in my complex because they were always watching yeah. these guys, yeah. you know. And uh they they busted yeah. one we uh, there was one guy who was a running guns from Korea really? and he was one of my yeah. tenants and then one day he he didn't pay his rent and I found out <laughs> in the newspaper the next day they'd come and yeah. got him and he got he was put in prison so it was
1: well. Well, uh, to Casey, speak it, speaking as a guy who's done that, thank God for you uh, friendly apartment managers who will help us out doing that kind of thing. And keep, and keep your mouth shut, <laughs> right. too, because I've been burnt yeah. a couple of times, too. But usually, we'd go in, if we'd go in a neighborhood, we'd go in under a complete cover. Uh, we we're oh, yeah. a manager that we were a a uh, surveying crew that was in town, and we needed a place to store our equipment, and for a guy, a few guys would come in town for a few days and stay overnight, and 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 leave again. So we weren't, we wouldn't keep like you know regular hours, and and that was that was a right. cover story that worked pretty well.
2: Yeah, it's um, there's some pretty good stories about Gotti about you know the FBI trying to rent an apartment across the street yeah. from him and set up all these things, but you know people on that block would you know would suss those people out oh, right God, away and, know. and yes. tell <laughs> on them and, you know, they had, had the whole neighborhood against them. Yeah. So, you know, it's not just the, the, the mob guys you're going after. It's all the other yeah. people in that, really. that whole community. So, okay. But uh, and other than that, I also have a website. Uh, it's Frank Costello com, which is, it's still pretty new. I'm it's needs a lot of updates, but I just kind of add stuff as I come across things and when I can. So it's, you know, hopefully in a couple of years, it'll be a big old database on just the history of Frank Costello, but also like all the books that are out there, a place that you can go if you want to know, you know, what book is good on him. I try to do little reviews on the ones I've read and, and that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, that's And that's pretty much, you know, what I do, uh, Aside from that, I do music, and I've been contributing to Gangland Wire, some of the music, right, which right. I really like doing. So, that, some that's the, a, a lot some of fun.
1: clips, like my opening and closing clips are yours. I've used some other your little clips. Casey, Folks, Casey would send me little short snippets to... Sometimes I'll break up a, a segment, or a, uh, there'll be like a natural turning point. I haven't done that for a while, but... So he sent me one that kind of sounded like him with a the Godfather theme, you know. He, so I don't yeah. have to pay royalties on that. We don't we don't have to worry about the Godfather, right? Francis Ford Coppola, Coppola or whatever his name is, or Mario Puzo, or <laughs> they didn't compose the music, but somebody sued me for that. And yet we had uh, uh, Peter Gunn, which I love that Peter Gunn one. Uh, uh, oh, thanks. A kind of a, a, a jazzy kind of a thing, and and uh, uh, what was it? James Bond, I think that was a good one too.
2: Yeah. Uh, I think the first one I remember I was listening to your your podcast and you had mentioned that you would would like to come across some music that sounded sort of like the Untouchables and so untouchables, I got to thinking. Yeah. And I was like, I wonder if I can make something yeah. like that up. And I, it came out. I sent it to you, and then I heard it on the podcast. Yeah. I was like, all right.
1: <laughs> I, I, I used those so, a year or so ago. I used those a lot more, and somehow I've got out of the habit. I, I'll need to. I don't know. You're just getting these patterns, and and uh, I don't use them so much. But more importantly, Casey, and you know, I really appreciate it, and I want people to know what you did. And when you're listening, or when you're watching my movie, Brothers Against Brothers. Uh, How would you you describe that sound? He did three different songs. I sent him songs that I used to, uh, that were used in something called Spooks, which is a British spy series, or MI5 is the American name on it. And I love that music for music to build tension and and, uh, uh, drama, and so I don't know what you'd call that, but he gave gave me three different pieces and I used them all the way through. I I love that music, Casey.
2: Well, thanks. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to do. Um, was, when you send me those clips, it's nice to get an, I- you know, yeah. an idea of like this is what I'm looking for. And that kind of music is uh, it's pretty easy to do these days at home. You know, in your home yeah. studio, you don't need to record an orchestra or a horn section or something like that. It's kind of more electronic sounding, so um, it, it's a lot of fun to do because you don't have to write a, a chorus or words and verses. You can just make soundscapes yeah. to you know fit fit something. And then when you you hear it. You know, behind the scenes that you did it's great. I just—it's a real thrill to see. Yeah,
1: thanks a lot. A matter of fact, folks, uh, I'm the, I'm going to throw in a clip right after this when I when I edit this thing. You you'll, you'll hear a little <laughs> clip of, of one of them, so you kind of know what I'm talking about. And I'll kind of leave it going right. underneath the scenes uh, uh, underneath our talking a little bit. Anyhow. M- moving right along, let's get, let's get, I know my fans like Porsche, Like for me, anyhow, uh, for the, the podcast to get right to the subject, uh, we probably bullshitted long enough, uh, uh, well, I shouldn't say that, we probably talked long enough about a variety of different things, uh, let's get to the subject of Frank Costello, and we were talking uh, earlier, Casey, and you, you suggested, there's a lot, you know. There's a whole life history of Frank Costello. I, use, I used I to told the story of Frank Costello the time he left the was it thirty thousand dollars on the in a, in a taxi. Yeah, cab. I think it was twenty five thousand. Yeah. Taxi cab. The taxi cab driver <laughs> turned it in, uh, uh, and uh, uh, he gave him a reward when he got it back, but. Uh, the, but then the uh, he didn't get it back for a long time because he, he turned it into the New York City police, and, and when they figured out whose who's it was, they had gone to it. And he had to go to court to get it back, But <laughs> I can see that. I'd have done the same thing, but been here in Kansas City, been in charge of the uh, uh, property room, I'd said, no, 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 we're not going to give that back to you.
2: <laughs> right. How'd you get it? Uh, his story about how he lost it is pretty funny, too, or how, you know, he's he said that he mixed that envelope up. With a, a gift that he was given yeah. a friend, and you know <laughs> that it's, it's obvious, yeah. you know it's just an excuse. Yeah. But uh, what, yeah, that
1: 1950 was 1950 or something. <laughs> you have twenty five thousand dollars in an envelope, or maybe even 40 yeah. Months.
2: I think it was actually even Mortis. in the 40s because uh-huh. th- that was really one of the first times that he he came up in the news. Uh-huh. Oh, really? Uh, he, he was actually, it's kind of hard to believe now when you see all the photos and the, all the stories about him, but uh, for a long time he was really under the radar and a lot of that had to do with the fact that he he just changed his name to Costello. Yeah. His original name was Castelia and, uh, you know, he kind of got an Irish version of it and uh, he didn't really hang out with a lot of uh, like other mobsters. He was kind of always had his uh he was always part of the you know what we'd call the Luciano or Genovese family Genovese and uh but he always had his own kind of things going his own businesses his own slot machine things like that so um he didn't run around with a lot of other mob guys like some of yeah. them do where they all you know that's the only kind of people they hang out with he was hanging out with more high society people in a way but uh so he he was kind of under the radar for a while until that and then <laughs> he, he started popping up in the news yeah. quite a bit after that. That's when his life kind of took a, you know, more of a yeah, turn. But.
1: So there's a lot, there's a lot to talk about Frank Costello. And we're not going to go over all of it. We're, we're going to go to the part of his life, really, when he was kind of uh, in retirement or uh, he was uh, uh, a, a professor emeritus, if you will, of the mob uh, <laughs> later on. Uh, uh, so, uh, and there's a movie out there, it's a series actually, isn't it? Called uh, The uh, Godfather of Harlem. And, yeah, and, that, and, and Frank Matthews is or Bumpy, remind me.
2: The uh, Bumpy, Bumpy Johnson, Johnson was. It, it is kind of the main uh, character. He was a numbers
1: runner had a, a numbers kingpin in Harlem, and numbers was a huge racket in Harlem. Which the Italians eventually, in every major city, it starts out in the black community with a black godfather, but uh, every major city, the Italians see that money coming in, and they want a piece of it. And they'll end up. Uh, if They don't just capitulate. Uh, why they'll knock them off or whatever. So this is that—that's right. what this series is about. But this tell us about Frank Costello and and his life during that time and what his piece of that was.
2: Yeah. Well, um, the the series first of all, it's it uses real characters. It's, it has Frank Costello. It's got Bumpy Johnson, uh, the Chin, and uh, Joe Bonanno. Or they're they're. Pretty strongly featured in this show, but it's a it's a fictional show completely. Uh, you know, and they they're not trying to say that it's history. They're just using these real characters uh, to make a completely fictional series. And I enjoy it. A lot of people hate it. <laughs> they, they, they don't like the idea that it's not real history. And I can kind of understand because it does confuse a lot of people. I I've been getting emails from people. Actually, all over the world, it's pretty amazing, and they, they're they asking me questions about the show oh, really? like, Did Frank Costello really know Bumpy Johnson <laughs> yeah. and all these things? And I was, you well, know, did he? I can't tell did he? you. Uh, as far as I know, he he, he didn't. Okay. Um, now they might have crossed paths, especially in the early days, maybe in Harlem back in the day. Um, but uh, you know, Frank, he ran with it, like I said, he ran with a, a lot a way different crowd than a lot of the mobsters did. You know, he was living in a penthouse on central park West. Uh, you know, even after he retired in 57 and he was no longer, you know, technically the boss, his life really didn't change much. Uh, he still had a, a really nice house out in Sands point. Um, the guy who helps me out with my, uh, my website and, the uh, the Facebook page, Mike mafuchi uh, who anybody who's in these groups knows who he is. Uh, he was lucky enough. He went, uh, out to Sands Point and got to meet the lady who lives in his house and she let him walk around the the grounds and he filmed it and that's up on our website if you want to kind of see what his house looks like today. Um, And she knew all about him. She was willing to talk about it and everything so it was kind of surprising that, uh, you know, she would let him do that. But, um, so when, when he retired in this, Television show, it takes place right around, I think, 63, when Bumpy Johnson uh, supposedly got out of, I think, Lewiston Prison is where they say he was. And according to the movie, uh, he saved Frank Costello's life in prison, and so they're friends, and uh, they kind of have... They kind of have each other's back for most of this series. Um, But as far as I know, they never met each other in prison. I don't think they ever served together. Frank was in uh, Atlanta penitentiary, and he did some time in uh, Rikers Island. But I don't think he ever spent any time with Bumpy. I think that that section of it comes from... There's stories that uh, Luciano and Bumpy served time together. And there's one rumor out there that... uh, Bumpy saved him in jail one time and they became friends. So I think that's what that's based off of. But, um, you know, I don't think Frank would be seen back in those days, um, you know, how to put it right. But, you know, he was a man of a product of those times. You know, he was a a rich white guy. You know, he probably wasn't going to be going down to Harlem and hanging out with, uh, you know, guys who were, you know, suspected or known to be selling drugs, heroin and stuff like that. Um, he, he was you know, not dealing sh- drugs. He,
1: that was never his thing. Well, yeah, they, ga- they. I mean, he uh, was 100% gambling, wasn't it?
2: He was. He was gambling, and you know, he started with the the, the bootlegging. Well, and that yeah, was. Yeah. He was probably the, about the second biggest bootlegger, probably on the on the East Coast. Um, and then, you know, he transitioned. He was one of those guys who was smart enough to see the writing on the wall, and they trans- transitioned into slot machines with Meyer Lansky and and all those guys. Um, but. In in this show, uh, he, they feature him quite a bit, like being involved with the the heroin trade, uh, not doing it himself, but at least being in on you know, meetings, talking about it. Um, you know, I certainly think that in reality he he knew what was going on. I can't imagine that somebody that is as street smart as a guy like that, the way he came up and being a bootlegger smuggler himself. You know, he he knew that was going on, and I'm sure he got profits from it too but I don't think that he er personally himself was you know involved in the uh, the selling of it or had his own guys out there doing it in fact there's a, a pretty good FBI document that's out there you can see on my Facebook um, where he wanted I think it was Mike Coppola hit uh, at one time there was in a commission meeting and uh, Frank was trying to get approval to have this guy hit because he was selling drugs around some of his, his clubs and doing that kind of stuff in his, you know, in his casinos and stuff like that. He didn't really want that kind of stuff around. Um, But they didn't approve it. He didn't get his way. And uh, (laughs) so see, that's a good example. There's just too much money in it, you know? And uh, I think he was the kind of guy, the way he, he saw himself, like I say, sort of apart from your everyday mobster thug. I think he would probably think that dealing with that kind of stuff, that's, below him you know he wouldn't want to be associated with that but but that being said his guy you know the guys in the mob were definitely doing it when he
1: was yeah, boss yeah. And, you know so if, if, <laughs> we if, all know that you're boss you're going to get a piece of the action I mean, yeah they yeah they're way down the down low and, and they really were back, yeah back in those days not until 1957 and after that did they ever try to keep it on the down yeah. low. yeah you yeah know?
2: So, yeah, I, as far as I know, I, I've never heard a story of him turning down an envelope <laughs> with money in it, uh, you know, and I'm sure he had to know where some of that was coming from. And, you know, a lot of guys, um, depending on how you look at it, uh, maybe indirectly, he was kind of responsible for a lot of those guys getting into it because at the time he became the boss, uh, he really – I think felt that he was just kind of a stand in for lucky Luciano. You know, he was just there to kind of run things for him. I I don't think he really ever saw himself as taking like, I am the boss now, you know, he knew he was there to kind of just run things while lucky was gone. Um, And the way he did it was he kind of let people do what they wanted. He, He wasn't one of those guys that ruled everything with an iron fist, had his nose in everybody's business, you know, as long as, things were running smooth and there were no problems, he let people kind of do their own thing. And a lot of those guys, because of that, you know, Costello was really good at making money. That was what he was good at. I don't think he had – it was hard for a guy like that to understand that for some other people it's not as easy to make money like that. They don't, They weren't as successful as he was. And a lot of those guys were suffering kind of economically because he he didn't really oversee that. You know, personally, he just let them handle their own business, and not all, not all of them were successful. So I think, you know, they turned to drugs because they wanted to get money. They weren't getting yeah. money; they were. It wasn't trickling down to them the way they wanted it to. No, um, that was a and huge uh,
1: transition from bootlegging. To what? What do I do now? There's no money to be made yeah. bootlegging. Well, I got a bunch of clubs out here, maybe I control, but there's not that much money in that. And, and then right. they, that's when they transitioned to gambling primarily, but drugs would be the other thing that would be really like bootlegging. You know, you got to smuggle it in and, and clandestinely, sure. clandestinely sell it. And so there's a lot of parallels, and, and I could see where a lot of them would move into
2: that. Yeah, I would imagine, too, because, you know, Frank was one of the guys that really opened up a lot of the, the smuggling, you know, passageways on the East Coast up from Canada. And he knew all the areas along the coastline to bring things in. You know, he was, he was amazing like that. He was kind of like an admiral. He had his own fleet of ships. He had seaplanes, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, he probably opened up a lot of those channels that those drugs yeah. were getting smuggled <laughs> through, you know? So, uh, but uh, you know, that was kind of one of the ways that Vito Genovese, when he came back, he was, it was made it a little easier for him to kind of dispose of Frank because he was able to turn a lot of those, those guys down at the lower level against him. They say, you know, he, he's telling us not to sell these drugs, but he's making all this money doing his own thing. And we're all down here, you know, starving, whatever. So, he was really able to kind of turn the tide a lot of those folks against Frank, and that's you know now, now, we all know what now happened. remind
1: me of this uh, uh, timetable here. Uh, during the war, or right after the war, uh, Vito Genovese and Lucky Luciano were in uh, Italy or Sicily. I don't remember if they went clear to Sicily or not, but they were in Italy. And uh, Vito came back. Lucky never got to come back. He tried to get close and. Came went down right. to Cuba, and they, they ended up getting him kicked out of Cuba. But Vito came back eventually, and and then wanted to take over uh, the, the Luciano family. And Luciano, by that time, was getting old enough that uh, I guess he felt like he had the he could get it done. So that 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 was what was going on. He even uh, I think didn't he try to kill Frank? Uh, he did.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, there's so many stories out there. You know, again, it's I, I kind of look at. My website and Frank's place as, you know, I I don't say this is what happened. Yeah. It's like here's here's you know the five stories that I've heard about this, all of them different. You you're going to have to make up your own yeah. mind on that. But um one of the ones that I tend to kind of agree with is uh I you know when when Vito came back according to a lot of the books, he he was kind of handed the family back. You know, Frank wasn't going to be the kind of guy who was like, "Well, no, this is mine now." Um Vito was the boss first before he left and if he came back Frank would have been the kind of guy that was like okay this is how it runs he'd probably was, been happy to get out of the job and go back to playing golf and just doing his own thing without all the headache but um, one of the problems was, was why Vito was gone you know Frank was pretty successful at bringing in big bucks with you know his casinos all of that kind of stuff
1: and especially and, those, uh, like those slot machines all through down through the south oh he yeah hooked up down with Carlos Marcello down in uh, he did, yeah. I mean, he the spread the there's family. There's a ton of gambling machines out there, and there's a lot of money there. Oh, that.
2: yeah. When you look at the time that Frank took over, uh, I mean, he expanded that family greatly in the years that he was the boss. Um, but when Vito came back, even if he was in the position of the boss, most of the rackets they were really making the money in were Frank's. So... One way that he kind of looked at it was like, well, Frank's got all this stuff tied up. What am I? What am I going to do? And Vito isn't the, wasn't going to be the kind of guy that's just going to sit up there and not be in charge of everything. You know, he'd have to be running stuff himself. So I think you know that's kind of where that started. He wanted to get Frank out of the way and take over his rackets, that kind of stuff, and then he would be the guy that was fully in charge. So I don't really think that you know when when Vito came back, I think he really kind of was given that position back, but he he wasn't comfortable. <laughs> with frank still being around because too many people still came to him for problem solving and yeah. things like that you know vito wanted them to come to him so uh so he tried to get him hit uh but you know depending on what you believe there's another great legend out there that uh that he didn't even really want him dead that that was just supposed to be a warning yeah. shot just to send a message um, i don't believe that at all because i don't think there's anybody out there that could make no, that it, shot it's like you the know. Bleep,
1: there is no warning shots there are no yeah, warning yeah, shots. Know, People say, oh, you wing them or, or you know, a warning yeah. shot. There is no warning shots. There is no winging. Yeah. You either shoot somebody to kill <laughs> them and go walk away or uh, it's an accident that you don't get them killed.
2: Yeah, I mean, he, you know, uh, it, it, I I, who's, I don't know anybody that could, could make a shot where you could just graze somebody's scalp on the side and, and not really? kill him, you know. And, uh, I, you know, I, I just think he, he missed. And um, Frank... Got the message and Frank, again, was not the kind of the guy to go to war over something like that. He wasn't even really that interested in probably, you know, being the boss at that time. Like I said, he had so many legal headaches and different things like that going on at the time that, you know, if they were going to allow him to retire, he'd be fine. Great. You take over. Yeah. <laughs> I got my own headaches right now. So I kind of, you know, I think that's what happened with that. Um, other people will tell you, no, you know, there's all sorts of reasons they think that it was set up. Uh, Like, you know, one of the reasons they say, why would you just send one person in to to shoot a boss and a hit? But I'm like, they knew he didn't have a gun. They knew he was by himself. He didn't have bodyguards and stuff like that. So to me, I don't really think that's any kind of reason to think that it was just a warning shot. But uh, but yeah, in the end, uh, you know, that was the chin that supposedly shot him. And Chin is featured, you know, really heavily oh. in this Godfather of Harlem show. Oh, he he's done, uh, Vincent yeah. D'Onofrio. Oh, really? Yeah. He's and he he's great. I think does you know they uh, even Vincent have Vincent
1: the Chin Galante.
2: Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: And, and, uh, a lot of and uh, people may not know that he was he was a up and comer at that point in time. He was yeah. a guy that in the end
2: or Gigante, gigante Sorry, yeah. <laughs> it was not Galante. Galante yeah, not Galante. About, that's I'm the other guy. The other
1: guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 the cigar guy. Carmine, yeah, yeah Lilo. Lilo. Yeah, okay, we got we get our Bob guys mixed up here, but is, <laughs> is he the same guy that in later years then walked around act like he was crazy when he was down in? Uh, he did, yeah, uh, he was, he
2: he was. Okay. Um, Yep, and they they have that in the show. Okay. They show him, you know, walking around in the in the bathrobe yeah. and all that stuff, being in the in the bathtub <laughs> and uh, and. But other than that, uh, you know, pretty much all the other stuff about the chin in there is fictional yeah. too. They have him and Frank Costello constantly hanging out together, working together, and uh, you know, supposedly if you believe the story, in court when um, the chin was uh, in court for you know shooting Frank. Frank said he he didn't recognize him and and the chin got off and they say that when the chin was walking out he said thanks Frank and they shook yeah. hands and there's even a report that they were seen having uh, breakfast together at uh, Frank's penthouse one time mm-hmm. after yeah. this so but as far as being super close and friendly like they are in the show I don't you know I have a hard time believing even if Frank is kind of known as a peacemaker that he's gonna wanna yeah spend too much time with the guy trying to shoot him yeah. in the head, you know?
1: So, yeah.
2: so, But it makes good drama in the show, Casey, for sure. Casey,
1: now, the, the Godfather of Harlem, then it starts about this point in time when actually Frank Costello is taking his retirement after he's been shot. And, and right. Vito Genovese is the boss of the old Luciano family, which will become right. the Genovese family. And... and the chin is like advising him he's they're like together is that what I I'm, I'm hearing you saying kind of like what well, one of the things that
2: yeah that, so I think it's right around 63 okay. is when this is supposed yeah. to start and and um at, at that time you know Vito would have been in, in prison and uh uh in reality, you know, from what I've heard, I think that uh, Fat Tony Salarno was really the guy that was running Harlem at that time. But in this show, they, they chose to go with the chin. I read an interview with the writer, and he said that was just a choice because the chin was such a colorful yeah. character. There's so many things you yeah. could do with him in a show like this. So, But um, at that point, really what you generally hear about Costello is he kind of became uh, like an elder statesman advisor for everybody. Um, he still – he used to – hang out at the Waldorf every day, and it was kind of like his office. People would just come to his table, sit down and you know, ask for money, advice, whatever they needed from him. And um, he, he liked that. I think he thought of himself as an advisor role. You know, he was a cons- consigliere originally, and that's a, a role that he really took to. He liked being sought after yeah, for advice and that kind you of know, stuff. In and, and, uh, uh, Chicago,
1: uh, Tony, during that, when Sam Giancana was actually the out-front boss, Then Tony Accardo and Paul Rica, they set up at this one restaurant, a Mayo's restaurant in Northwood, I think, the north side of of Chicago and, and they'd sit up in that restaurant most every day and, and people would come in and, and talk to them and seek their advice. And it's kinda like they were they were the boss of the boss in, in a way. And right. the same thing in Kansas yep. City. Nick Savella was the out front guy who was on the streets and talking to people, but he wasn't the underboss. He had an underboss who actually would go out and, and take the real enforcement action and, and make sure everybody was towing the line and pick up money. But Nick Savella was, was, you know, the known boss, but he had this uh, Joe of who was a guy that introduced him at the, was going to introduce him at the Appalachian Convention in 1957 as a new boss of Kansas City. So so that's not that uncommon, I think, to have that senior advisor that uh, yeah. have the guy that everybody knows as the boss, but you have this, these people that seem to be retired and are back behind the scenes. Uh,
2: Yeah, yeah, Um, I've I've heard too that you know there's um when when Costello would you know set set up court at the Waldorf up there at his table, um, some of those scenes in the Godfather, the wedding scene, there's the ones where you know Michaels has a line of people constantly coming to him looking for stuff, but a lot of that is kind of based off of Frank in that way that you know said if you could go up there at Any afternoon and watch his table, and it was just a series of one after another you know a guy would sit down they'd do some business a guy would yeah. get up move, and then a guy from another table would just <laughs> take <laughs> his place and that, and that's where he did a lot of that business so I think a lot of that kind of came from there but um but yeah it, it you know in the show the uh the godfather of Harlem I think that they they bump up Frank's importance during those times in the 60s probably more than it was, though. Um, they still in the show have all sorts of people coming to him for political favors to get them in political yeah. positions and things like that. And I, in, in reality at that time, you know, he had been on TV and in the papers so much that uh, it kind of ruined his reputation for being able to, to hang out with politicians yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, At that point, you know, they couldn't be seen with them like they could in the early days yeah. what's, um, what's the, what's so, the famous
1: scene that was all over the newsreels of the day he's talking about Mr. Costello if he did anything good for society <laughs> you paid there my you tax I paid <laughs> my <taxes. laughs> what more yeah. do you want man I and, paid my taxes. right
2: <laughs> <laughs> and you know that you know it, that was one of the first media spectacles that we ever had in this country because TV was still pretty yeah. new and millions of people were watching him and seeing that and so that was another way that Vito was kind of able to turn the tides against him. He was just like, look, you know, this guy, how effective can he be as a boss? Like, he can't go anywhere without, you know, 50 FBI guys yeah. following him. Everybody recognizes him now. He had people coming up just like Al Capone and Gotti would want his autograph. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, that really severely limits your use in that world. Uh, so And, you know, politicians at that point started to veer away from him. and uh, He'd get kicked out of country clubs. Yeah. Stuff like that. He was constantly having to battle that kind of stuff after that. Um, when all he, he just wanted to be, you know, looked at as a businessman, but you know, everybody knew at that time what he what he was. So, so I think that's pretty highly fictionalized in the show. Like his his importance, first of all, in the mob, and also politically at that time. I, he, he was certainly still involved in certain things, and I think mostly he was good at like kind of helping settle disputes between guys, you know, people respected him. He was a calm head and he could, he could get people to, to come together in agreements and, and settle disputes. He was great at that kind of stuff. And I think that was more of kind of what he did. But from what I've heard, some of the people that I've talked to who have actually met him, uh, the people that I've talked to who have met him, you know, met him pretty late in life just because, you know, we're at yeah. that age yeah. now. But, uh, it sounds like he was still uh, active right up to the end. He died when he was 82 in uh, 1973. But he was healthy, uh, walking the streets in New York, and still active. Um, the last kind of conversation I've had with a guy who, who'd met him, met him just months before he died. And he, they went to have lunch with him to settle a dispute with a union thing, and they thought Frank could help him out. And I was like, well, you know, he must he was still... Getting sought after for help right well, up to the end. Interesting.
1: And happy to do it. Question about that period of his life, which is mainly what we're talking about. You know, when, when uh, he was shot, didn't the uh, police pull a piece of paper out of his pocket that showed uh, the uh, daily uh, uh, take from uh, one of the Las Vegas casinos? From the
2: yeah, your your uh, the casino, Tropicana, the Tropicana.
1: they <laughs> yeah. Matched up. The, for that day or the day before, those numbers were right, and, and which indicates he was yeah. getting something out of that. Or, or He had a big interest in money at the Tropicana, the, yeah. so in that later part of his life, did, is your studies or your interviews, you learn anything about was he continuing to get skimmed from out there or some kind of cash money? Because those guys are not going to send him a check like he's a shareholder or anything. Right, are got to send some cash money. Uh, <laughs>
2: Um, well, I know that like, right after that, he, it was, uh, you know, you don't really see any pictures of him in Vegas or anything like that, which I thought was kind of strange. I've always on on the lookout to find one of, of him in one of the casinos there. And I, I know he certainly went there from a time or two, but after that, he was kind of blacklisted. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know how yeah. that works. So it, he really couldn't uh, head out there anymore, but he certainly must have been getting some little bits of cash from here or there after he was retired with Vito. I mean, Vito kind of t- took over his rackets and was getting the money. Um, the one that I know he let uh, Frank Costello keep was uh, the Copa Cabana because Frank was one of the guys who, who started that and that was always kind of considered his club and uh, Vito let him keep that. So he was getting money from the Copa, okay. which was always probably pretty profitable. Um, and he had, he had oil wells. Uh, he had a lot of legitimate businesses going on and, in the Beverly down in um, New Orleans. So he was getting, you know, money. Uh, I've heard at the end, uh, it was starting to trickle out a little bit. He was friends with uh, Generoso Pope, the guy who started the, uh, the National Enquirer and, and uh, Frank was one of the ones who got that started. He gave him like, I think it was $10,000 every month to, to his payroll to get everything going. And then soon as the, you know, the circulation would get, uh, Generoso the, the money back he would pay Frank back off and he did that for like uh, probably 4 or 5 months until he built up enough money on his own to just keep it going and then he didn't but uh there's one story that towards the end of his life Frank kind of came to him and asked for a loan and Generoso turned him down he he was going to give him I, he, Some money, but not as much as Frank had asked for, and so Frank told him just forget it. He's like, I put the guy in business, and (laughs) now he, 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 you know, he just blows me off. So I think towards the end with IRS stuff, he was probably starting to trickle down in the money. Um, He was a huge gambler, and that probably played played a lot into it. And from what I've heard, like Toots Shore and guys like that that remember, you know, hanging out with him there, so like he gambled to get hurt. Like he didn't just gamble a couple bucks here and there. He he broke himself yeah. a couple times and then had to build it back up. So, you know, I don't think that he, he stopped his gambling habits yeah. at, towards the yeah. end. I think he probably picked it up because he had more time to go do it.
1: Not, um, not unless so, he went to Gamblers Anonymous. He didn't stop that guy. Kind of yeah, I don't, I don't think he, think he did. He did. He just like John, John Gotti. <laughs> that was his big problem. He he was oh, yeah. trying to get more and more money from everybody under him because he had all these gambling yeah. debts. And, and, you know, he needed to pay him off to maintain his status. I mean... His he image walk and away all from that. Gambling debt in that world. Even if you're more powerful than the guy you owe it to, you just can't, you yeah. can't do that. And so,
2: yeah, welsher is the worst thing yes, you could you, know, yes, you could and be. And it, you got to be a man. You
1: got to be a stand up guy. So yeah, interesting. But
2: I know that you know once he when he died, um, they sold his his house and the penthouse, and his wife Bobby moved back down to New Orleans, where her family was kind of uh-huh. from. And uh, but I think you know at that point the IRS kind of cleaned them out uh there's they say there's a legend that he always kept a, a suitcase with a million dollars in it for an emergency which might have been true um he could have had cash stowed away you know that she just used sparingly and didn't go out and get flashy yeah. with it but from the the relatives i've talked to that knew her and were in her apartment that she moved to and everything uh it sounded like you know most of the money went to the irs after frank passed i think she was pretty lost she didn't you know he was the guy that was handling all that. She was just a, a 50s wife, yeah. you know. <laughs> she she wasn't involved in much of that. And so, you know, at the end, like a lot of these guys, they're like rock stars. They, they, I think they think the money's just going to always yeah. come in. And you get older and it stops. <laughs> what are you going to do, you know? They didn't so. have a 401K
1: or a 403B. No, or he, <laughs> he, he, he did not well, have a well, 401K. A lot of those guys, 403B. they won't even pay into Social Security because they've always done these You know, scams all their life, or uh, you know, had a book and and they you know, they just barely uh, uh, declare enough money to to show what it looks like that they're making. So they don't even pay that much in social security. I suppose they pay in enough to get it, but uh, but yeah, I
2: mean, they say that he had he would carry. His spending, like uh, gambling, cash in one pocket, and he would have lending cash in the other. And uh, when people would come up to get a loan from him, he would always give them an extra hundred dollars to see if they brought it to his attention. Ah. And if they didn't, he would never give them a loan again because he thought that he he learned something about that person. And if they did bring it to his attention, then they were okay with him. But uh, you know, just like that envelope that he left, he used to walk around with just tons of cash. Yeah, you know, really? He was a strictly cash basis <laughs> kind of guy, probably. So, you I, know, got, I got a little just, cash stuck don't...
1: away over here, and, and I'm not telling you where, uh, but uh, <laughs> it's my traffic ticket money. When I do a traffic ticket, usually people pay me <laughs> in cash. Oh, <so. laughs> the IRS just will be for now, won't they? <laughs> well, it's yep. not that much money, but... <laughs>
2: That's how I am with 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 my your, your music, music earnings. You know, it's pretty yeah. much all yeah. in cash, yeah. and that just goes in my little jar, to, so I can fly to Kansas City for a World summit and yeah. stuff like that. I'm
1: working on that now. Okay, well let's let's finish this off. I think are you we pretty well done here. This is kind of during the time. <laughs> yeah. of, you know, I think we've covered the Godfather of Harlem Neal and his connection to it, and and and. Uh, I would just say Frank. watch the okay. show
2: if you get a chance, because you know uh, he. he when you look at things like boardwalk empire and, and a lot of those shows uh, frank costello never ends up in those i don't know why it's always bugsy lansky and yeah. lucky you know and for some reason frank costello just never really like got into the movies like a lot of these other characters so even though it's a completely fictional yeah. thing it was it's really fun for me to just watch yeah. to see frank in a role and it's paul servino who is you know he's you need Thank somebody you. Yeah. to play frank costello that can be convincing yeah. as a boss yeah. and paul servino He's perfect at it, I think. I really like the way he portrays Frank. Yeah, really.
1: You know, I did a show on Kill the Irishman with uh, another guy that helps me out with stuff. He's, does my. Uh, he's one of my administrators for my uh, web page or my uh, my Facebook page. Uh, Basil Terabisi from down in Texas, and and we talked about Kill the Irishman and. Uh, Paul Sorvino was in that, and uh, Vincent D'Onofrio was in that too. So those guys, yeah, we were talking yeah. about that. How there's a small cadre of, of people out there that that earned a pretty good living in these mob movies.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would you know I would just suspect at this point somebody in Hollywood like we need a boss. Like, we'll just <laughs> Paul Sorvino, call Paul yeah. Sorvino. Like, you don't even need a an audition. <laughs> you just he just has He's that yeah. that air wow. about him. And and when you look at pictures of Frank, you know. He has that air about him. He looks like a boss. You know, everybody, when you'd walk into a room, he just had that kind of thing about him that, you know, he was in charge. And so I've seen a couple portrayals of Frank and just little bit parts and stuff. And the guys that they have are kind of – it's like it doesn't look anything like him. And they don't have the – you know, that that panache or whatever you call it. I don't know. But (laughs) – so I think Servino was, was a good choice. Really?
1: All right. Uh you know one last thing how did he get the 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 name the prime minister of the underworld? Do you know did you, in your studies uh, uh, well, that? Well
2: there's there's a couple of stories about that. The one that usually comes up the most is uh during the Atlantic City conference. Um you know this was right after uh they when they brought Capone in because after the the Valentine's Day yeah, massacre, uh, all right, that stuff. And they out. Did, yeah, they wanted to you know kind of set him down and say, "Hey, you need to to cool it out a little bit. And you're bringing yeah. too much heat." And they were also going to use that conference, you know, to kind of start bringing people together to to form what was going to be that syndicate, you know, once they got rid of uh uh Masseria right. and all those guys. But uh so supposedly at the uh at the conference, even though at that time Frank was still he wasn't as high-ranking, but he he sort of arranged that whole thing, and everybody was very impressed with him the way he got brought everybody together. You know, would introduce people to each other, and it, supposedly it was him that set Capone down and convinced him to go to jail on the gun charts to kind of take some of the heat off him. And after that, everybody kind of looked at him like, "Wow, you know, you're like like a prime minister. <laughs> you're more you're like a diplomat kind of guy because that, that's what he excelled at. You know, he was good at that kind of stuff." Interesting. You know, he didn't get that name like you know the blade yeah. or the Lord High Executioner. It was it was more suiting for what who he was. The clown. Yeah, so that's one of the stories. And again, you know, I'm not saying it's true. It's, but this is just one of the things that yeah. you read. So.
1: Interesting. That's that's what's out there. All right, all right, Casey. I appreciate it, and uh, I know the wiretappers out there will appreciate this show on uh, Frank Costello. Uh, he's uh, he's a really interesting guy, and he was hugely important in the development of the modern day uh, National oh, Crime Syndicate.
2: There, there's nobody like him. I mean, the one thing that's amazing about him is uh, his run. It's it starts, you know pre-prohibition in those early days of when the the Italians kind of immigrated, all the way up into the 70s. And he was active during that whole time. So he went through prohibition. He went through the Casta of Roar. I can never say that word. But he wasn't just a participant either. I mean, he was one of the architects of all that stuff. He wasn't just passing through all those things. I mean, he started, helped start gambling. If you talk to Bill Freeman, you know, he'll tell you there's nobody in the history of American gaming that did more than yeah. Costello. And uh, and he just goes through all those fascinating times of the mob, and he he was, his career is just so long, there's just so much to talk about, and there's books, there's so many pictures of him, Yeah. there's audio of him talking, which yeah. is great, you know, so he's a fascinating guy, he's a good subject to get into because you can go for a long yeah. time <laughs> before you run really. out of stuff.
1: Another interesting thing, talking about Bill Friedman is uh, he said that, you know, when Vegas legalized gambling and it started to become more and more popular, they, the, the the ranchers and the local people out there didn't really know how to run a casino. They knew how to run businesses, but they didn't know how to run a casino. And who knew how to run a casino but all these carpet joints and, and people had been overseeing the slot machines for people like Frank Costello all over the United States. And so yeah. those people then matriculated or moved out to Las Vegas and started getting the jobs to help run the casinos, and you know, really, that those people are the ones that got Las Vegas going and, and made it successful. Absolutely. Otherwise, it then might have kind of collapsed in on itself. Somebody else could have legalized gambling, but it took off.
2: Yeah, they say that's how he got the nickname Uncle Frank was uh, when they he started to move down to New Orleans with Marcello and all that. Um, he sent most of his family to kind of run his legal you know, businesses down there. And so most of the people that were working for him, they weren't made people. He was, he was pretty strict about, he didn't bring his family into that life kind of thing, but he did fill up his businesses with his, family, and that was another thing that made some of the mob people mad. It's like he didn't give them those jobs, he gave his family members yeah. those jobs. So everybody that worked for him for him, was kind of, a, a, you know, an underling yeah. relative, and so they all called him Uncle Frank, and that's yeah. how he got that name. And, but, and what
1: happens is, we got a guy here in Kansas City that, that people will refer to him as Uncle Frank, because he's got so he's got a book, I think, and he's got some, a bunch of different people in businesses who are related to him that they call him, and rat the <laughs> area, and they call him Uncle Frank, so everybody kind of starts calling him Uncle Frank. Nick yeah. Isabella, they called him <laughs> Zeo, which is, uh, 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 was that uncle or is that grandpa? No, it's uncle. They, I think it's uncle, uncle or something, right? They call right? him Zeo, and, and so <laughs> in, in the wiretaps and stuff, many times other people refer to him as Zeo. It's not like it's a, you know, never really got out in the public because he was such a non-public guy. Uh, you're not going right. to find any images of Nick Savella out there in the public other than, uh, you know. <laughs> the one with, with Bill yeah, leading with him Bill, in Bill the stairs, Leon that's Rossi about it. Jay Airy leading him in with his coat over his head. Yep. That's, a great, well, that's the greatest burp walk shot I have ever seen.
2: It i love good. it yeah i asked him when i interviewed him i'm like man i hope you have that picture like in your living room on <laughs> the does. wall or something he's like as a matter of he fact does. i he do <laughs>
1: <laughs> but
2: yeah they say uh you know frank he didn't like the prime minister nickname but he did like the uncle oh, frank nickname he thought he liked that one all so.
1: right well thanks a lot but, casey i appreciate you're welcome it. thanks
2: for having me gary i'm glad to have finally made it onto gangland yeah, wire really,
1: it's been great let me, let me finish <laughs> this off now uh if you have a
0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Friend or relative who has a problem with drugs or alcohol, make your first call to first call. Call 816-361-5900. Or go to their website, www.firstcallkc.org. You know, I got a website out there that's got a lot of the show, got all the show notes on it. Uh, that's www.ganglandwire.com. I've got my new movie, Brothers Against Brothers, uh, the Savella Sparrow War. Uh, it's on uh, Amazon Prime. You can rent it. If you go to the more purchase options, you can get it for a dollar ninety-nine. I shouldn't tell you that because most people get it for two ninety-nine, <laughs> the uh, the high definition version. I don't think there's any difference in the versions because I get I get a piece of that action, a percentage. But Gangland Wire, that's there now. If you want to make a donation on my uh, website or through Venmo whatever, $25 or more, and I'll give you a copy of either Gangland Wire, the DVD, which has special features on it, or Brothers Against Brothers, which has some special features on it, or my book, or, or I'll send you a coupon uh, for the Kindle version of my book, Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Uh, you all know that uh, that Kindle version has the actual wiretaps that I used in the book linked to it so you can actually hear the uh, the wiretaps of the people who are involved in skimming from Vegas casinos. I've got the Kansas City Mob Tour app. Uh, you can get that on the Apple Store and take a, your own personal Mob Tour of Kansas City. And uh, so I, I appreciate uh, all you wiretappers out there that have uh, donated and, and supported this in many ways. Uh, always always supported a little more with for free by just going to my Facebook page and liking it. And then sharing stuff I put on there because the bigger uh, of a following that I get out there, then the more people will find my work. And that's what it's all about, isn't it, Casey? Is getting your name out there. It is. <laughs> You gotta make relationships and people will help yep. you out right. you know? like like you and me and and men and, and <laughs> Ham up in uh, Chicago you know a big tip of the hat to Camulus Robinson in Chicago has been a huge help. I've said i say this every time I have him on and now I've got basil Terraabichet who's been helping with the uh, Facebook page and so it's uh, you know you can't do this all by yourself uh, I got I gotta keep earning a living a little bit all along too and and uh, so I, I appreciate everybody's helped me all right good night. Casey, good night, folks. All right.
2: Thanks for having right. me, Gary.
1: All right. Take care. All right, Casey. that has been fun. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.